always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Російська стратегічна поразка очевидна вже всім у світі, навіть тим, хто ще продовжує. Russia's strategic defeat is obvious to everyone in the world. That's what Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky declared a fortnight ago. It's a surprising turn of events, considering most expected this war would be over within days, ending in a victory for Russia. But things haven't gone to plan for Putin over the past two months. What Russia's fighting for now is entirely different than what it was fighting for on February 24th. Phillips P. O'Brien is a professor of strategic studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Putin was assuming he would take over all of Ukraine to now basically trying to hold on to about 10 to 15% of the country. So yeah, that's a huge ramping back of what the, the Russian plans were. That's primarily been down to Ukrainian resistance. I mean, Ukrainian resistance was just far more effective than, than expected. Now the question is, is the more limited plan, the South and the East, holding that sort of wedge of territory, is that now something the Russians can do? The Ukrainian forces have had some significant victories. They've prevented Russia from taking Kyiv, and they've beaten them back from Kharkiv. But with thousands of Ukrainians dead, fighting still raging in the east, and peace talks that have hit an impasse, this war shows no signs of abating. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Jennifer Ryan, standing in for Conor and Serka. Today, can Ukraine win the war against Russia? Phillips, before Russia invaded Ukraine, Western analysts predicted that the superior Russian armed forces would take the country within days. And that clearly hasn't happened. Why do you think that analysts got it so wrong? Well, I mean, I think there was a few things that happened. One was the uh, assumption of Russian superiority and weaponry. Therefore, they should be able to impose their will on Ukraine, overlooking two things. One, the Ukrainian willingness to fight. And the analysis is very few people really thought the Ukrainians were going to fight as well as they fought. But then on the other hand, saying, well, can the Russians fight as well as their weapons indicate? You know, is this army actually well trained? Is it motivated? So I think it was a combination of perhaps overrating weaponry and underrating Ukraine. And air power should have been one of Russia's greatest advantages over Ukraine. But that hasn't worked out like that either. What kind of experience and resources do the Russian Air Force have? And how has Ukraine managed to prevent it from taking over the skies in this war? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the problem that that we see right away is that the Russians have a far larger number of aircraft and very good high-spec aircraft than the Ukrainians. But what they've been unable to do is impose sort of air superiority, air dominance over the battlefield. Now, that's come from a a few things. One, the, the Russians never actually had practiced against people who were firing back. The Russians have used their air force quite a lot in the last few years. They've used it in Syria. They used it earlier in Chechnya and Georgia. So they used it against countries that didn't fire back, and they were effective in dropping bombs. What the Ukrainians have been able to do is present a challenge to the Russian air force. They're not blowing the Russian air force out of the sky, but you might say they're 
unsettling Russian pilots so that Russian pilots really are just flying missions. They are told, go drop a bomb in this area. They fly in, drop the bomb and get out. And they're not constantly patrolling to try and you know, restrict Ukrainian movement. So too often people assume that um, the Russian Air Force and the Russian Army as a whole could do things a bit like the U.S. military could do, maybe not as advanced, but sort of a smaller version of the U.S. military. It turns out they just don't have the ability to manipulate complex systems like the U.S. Air Force. They can't do everything involved. So it's simply one that the assumption was they could do far more than it turns out they can do. What has it been about the way the Ukrainian forces have conducted themselves on the ground then that has so frustrated the Russian advance that way? Well, there's, I mean, one was shutting down the air from the ground. I mean, they, that, that actually, well, there have been Ukrainians flying. What they did from the ground was present enough challenge to keep the Russians' aircraft from really being effective. And that's from applying layers of defense. We, you see lots of pictures of these guys ha- holding handheld weapons. These are the, the Stinger missiles, the like. But they also have very effective systems, sort of anti-air systems. So from the ground, they've been able to present enough of a challenge to Russian aircraft that the, the Russian aircraft, as I said before, are unsettled. Having been able to keep the Russians from dominating the air, you know, the Russians still apply a lot of air power and they still fire with missiles, what that has meant is the Ukrainians can use their ground forces against Russian armored columns. I mean, that would be, that was sort of, I think, the thing that people were unsure about. If the Russians had been able to dominate the air, they would keep the Ukrainians from really being able to devastate the the, the Russian armored forces like they have. But because the Ukrainians have maintained mobility, they've been able to apply systems to Russian armored vehicles from, again, you know, it's not having one. There's no one magic bullet of a weapon. It's having sort of layers of systems that all pose challenges from handheld anti-tank to you know, now UAVs and growing sort of Ukrainian artillery. So they've been able to apply all of these things on Russian ground forces, which have now meant that Russian advances, when they occur, are really very slow and very costly. And as the war has gone on, a lot has been written about low morale among Russian troops. What evidence has there been for this? And how do you think it has impacted the Russian army's plan for this war? Well, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of anecdotal stories and we have to be somewhat careful about that um, because it's, you know, the Russian army is still in the field and it's still fighting and it's still trying to advance. Now, what do we say about those advances? They do tend to be and have been since, you know, the first few days when things started going to be wrong, relatively cautious. So the Russians are not, you know, they don't seem to be taking massive risks. So it's not so much, I think, that morale is breaking everywhere. Um, I haven't seen, you know, there are stories of Russian soldiers and indeed Russian officers refusing to do attacks. But it's more that what seems to happen is the Russian army is waiting to do things and say until they've saturated an area with artillery. So you might say it's led them to fight in quite a, a cautious way. But that you know, we always have said they are in the field and they have regenerated force. So we don't want to overstate, I think, problems with Russian morale. 
The battle for the city of Mariupol appears to be over after hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers surrendered from their final holdout. The city has suffered one of... Mariupol appears to have been conquered by Russia. How difficult do you think it will be for Ukraine to take that city back, or is that even a possibility? Well, it's only a possibility later in the war. I mean, if the Ukrainians get back to Mariupol... It won't be because of some daring mission, I don't think. It'll be basically because the Russian army has been so badly damaged that either there's a new Russian government that wishes to make peace and decides it's worth going back to the earlier border, or that the Russian army has suffered so badly over the course of a summer that it basically pulls back. So if the Ukrainians get to Mariupol, things are going to be very bad for the Russian army. And that's what I mean. The the tricky thing going forward is the Ukrainians have shown the ability to stop the Russians. And the Ukrainians have taken back sort of areas around Kharkov. But they've generally taken back areas where the Russians were in the process of pulling out. What the Ukrainians have yet to do, and that might be because technologically it's really difficult to do, is to go into the heart of a Russian formation and actually take territory back. Um, And that's probably something that is still a ways away. And as we speak, fighting is still raging in the Donbass. How long do you think Russia can keep fighting in that region? Will Moscow be satisfied with any outcome other than a win in the East in particular? Well, I mean, it's what they need to be able to package it as a win. You know, what what is a win and what is not a win is partly up to how they wish to say or package what what will occur. They will certainly, if if this government is going to stay in power, the Putin regime, they're going to have to package it as a win, whatever it is. Can they hold on? I mean, this is the great question. You know, they've taken this wedge of territory, as I said. They're trying to take a little bit more of it. The problem they're going to have is that they've suffered a lot. There's been significant Russian casualties. We can look at that from just open source intelligence. There have been significant Russian losses. And once this sort of present offensive burns itself out, which it looks like it probably will in the coming week or two or a few weeks, then the Russians were going to have to face Ukrainian armed forces that are getting better armed. I mean, the Ukrainians are actually much better armed now than they were on February 24th. I mean, that's, that's the change. The change that the, the Russians are going to have to face is the enemy they were facing on February 24th is not the enemy they're facing now. And at that point, the Russians are going to have to try and hold what they have. That's going to probably be a pretty nasty piece of work, partly because the Russians actually, they're trying to do what I think could be called a mobilization on the sly or a surreptitious. Putin didn't call for general mobilization, but they are trying to generate more forces and they're doing it by sort of a number of quieter ways. But it's kind of hard to be, it's hard to see how they can keep a large army in the field for, say, a year without a general mobilization. And what do you think, talking about that idea of uh, how a victory is packaged, what do you think Putin's baseline for victory is now? God knows. I mean, I've always been wrong on Putin, so I don't like to guess. I mean, I I didn't think he'd invade because I thought it was such a stupid choice to make. Then I thought he'd try to cut a deal when his army was near Kiev to, you know, to secure some advantages. So, you know, I, and every time he seems to double down on doing dangerous and stupid things, which actually are not in his interest. So what can he package as a victory? 
I mean, he could probably package anything going back to the February 24th line, really, by saying, look, we've now got Crimea and uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk republics recognized as part of Russia. So that's a victory because legally they weren't recognized before. I think the question is, will the, would the Russian people buy it? Um, and would, you know, would there be enough opposition to the war from in, the inside the Russian government to, in a sense, to allow the regime to continue? Coming up, what will it take for Ukraine to win the war? Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. In reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Finland and Sweden have announced their intentions to join NATO. How has Russia responded to this and what does their response say about their strength now? It's actually been shocking how 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 weak the Russian response has been, which is an example of how weak Russia has is now because of this disastrous war. That if the idea of Finland, particularly Finland, joining NATO with a huge border with Russia, if Finland has a much longer border with Russia than almost any other country in Europe. And the idea, it's always been a country that, you know, from the Second World War onwards, uh, for the end of the Second World War, has been seen as neutral. Finland had to be neutral. There was even a phrase, Finlandization, about it. The fact that Finland can, in a matter of weeks, go from a clear position of neutrality to now saying we have to have NATO membership, and all Russia can do is get a little angry and, and, and throw around insults, shows really that they have no, no option. They have to accept this. Uh, because there's nothing they can't militarily oppose it. There's nothing they have. You know, there's no force left. So I think it's a sign, really, of how this war has hugely weakened and been counterproductive. I mean, it's hard to think of a strategic decision by a leadership since the end of the Second World War that has gone so badly wrong. It's it's upended and basically had so many things Russia never wanted to have happen happen. And Finland and Sweden joining NATO would be top of that list. And do you think the chance of nuclear war or Putin using his nukes, especially a Putin who is backed into a corner or is being perceived as being weak, do you think there's a greater chance of him going the nuclear route in that situation? Again, I'm always wrong about him, but uh, I would say that he doesn't want to use nuclear. I mean, clearly, I think using nuclear weapons is a horrific choice because you know, what happens if it escalates? How do you keep it from escalating? If you're going to be the first person to break the nuclear taboo, you really are. You are admitting one: the war's going very badly. We're losing the war, but then you also lose the control over escalation, and that's something that countries supporting him, such as China, they don't want a nuclear war. 
They certainly don't want a nuclear exchange. So there's a lot of pressure on Putin not to go down that route. And, and I just can't, and there'd probably be a lot of pressure within the Russian state not to do it. And the Russian armed forces probably don't want uh, you know, tactical nuclear weapons dropped in a country in which they're fighting. So uh, there would be a lot of pressure not to use nuclear weapons. Now, that doesn't mean they won't be used. Um, it might be if the stories are believed and he's in ill health that maybe he makes some radical wild choice. However, I think it's probably, it, it would be such a, a catastrophic choice that even someone in his situation would be very, very careful before they did it. So my, my inclination is to say, I, I can't see, unless there's actually a Ukrainian threat to move into Russia, I can't see sort of the dropping of, of nuclear weapons. Peace talks between Ukraine and Russia, they are going on behind the scenes, but they hit an impasse last week. And in recent days, Poland backed Ukraine's insistence that it will not surrender territory to Russia to secure a peace deal. But there is a view that a negotiated peace in this war will mean Ukraine ceding some territory to Russia. What's your view on this? Well, I mean, there will be a negotiated peace for two basic reasons. Russia has shown it can't conquer Ukraine and Ukraine can't conquer Russia. And since neither side can conquer the other, at some point, there will have to be a peace deal. I think the question is, is it a peace deal that can be arranged between the present governments? Now, right now, it is unlikely because both governments seem to believe that they can secure better terms by fighting. See, to have a peace deal, you have to have both sides say, okay, actually, the continuation of the war is not in our interest. But right now, Putin is certainly, the Russians believe, they want to continue the war to take more of Donetsk and Luhansk, more of the, the sort of Black Sea coast. And so they don't want a peace deal in their own mind as they're still making advances. And the Ukrainians don't want a peace deal now because they believe they're going to get stronger over the course of the summer. And they'd rather wait and see the military option sort of work itself out more, believing the Russian army will be in far worse shape um, by the end of the summer than it is now. So to, neither of, we are not in the situation where both sides believe a peace deal is in their interest. And until we do reach that point, it's not going to happen because they both believe they can achieve better results by letting the fighting go on. And what about that view that is being held in some quarters that in order for peace to be negotiated at all, that Ukraine will have to give up some of its territory? Do you think that that's... A possibility, or do you think it's the right route for Ukraine to take? I don't want to tell the Ukrainian government what to do. Yeah, the Ukrainian government has to decide what they believe is in Ukraine's own interest. I think we need to be very careful about telling Ukraine what we think it should do. Yeah, that, uh, that you know, oh yes, you must give up your territory to to Russia to end this war. But first of all, we don't know if giving up the territory would end the war. So that's a very odd thing to say. But ultimately, this is for Ukraine to decide. I think the Ukrainian military uh, and government certainly believes they have the ability to damage the Russian army over the summer, which would put them in a much better case shape for getting back their territory. And if they are willing to do that and the Ukrainian people are willing to support that fight, it's not up to us to tell them what they have to do. Uh, I think that's their choice. Do you think there's a realistic chance that Ukraine could win this war? And if so, at what cost to its people? Sure. Well, they've already paid a massive cost. 
I mean, they've already paid such a cost that in many ways they, they're, they're not unhappy paying more. I mean, they're not happy to pay more, but they're willing to pay more. And Putin and you know, the Russian army's uh, treatment of the Ukrainians has also made them say, how could we not pay this? I mean, the ability, if we don't pay the cost now, then we're just going to be destroyed by Russia. So, i.e., this is a cost the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government seem willing to, to pay, partly because of the way the, the Russian army and, and uh, has behaved in that. So they are willing to pay it. Can they win? Yes, because they can win because the Russians, unless they mobilize, are actually... The, the Russian government is stuck in a real problem. Their army actually isn't that large after the losses it suffered. And if they don't go for a full-scale mobilization, which they don't want to do for political reasons, then actually they're going to have a real trouble going forward with the number of soldiers needed to control such a large area. Um, they're going to start running out of them if their casualty rates continue. So Ukraine can win, but it's going to take the shedding of a lot of blood and the destruction of a lot of material. That's why it will have to go on for probably this whole summer. This is more than just a European issue. It's a global issue. The fact is that what, if you turn on the television, you'll see what Russia is doing now. It appears to me that Putin is just trying to ex extinguish a culture. He's not even aiming at military targets anymore. He's taking out every school, every church, every, every natural history museum, as if to try to obliterate the Ukrainian uh, culture. Ukraine's campaign is heavily dependent on support from abroad, particularly the US, where President Biden recently signed off on another $40 billion support package. The American public is behind President Biden in this for the moment, but popular support for a war far away from US shores can't continue indefinitely, can it? Well, it's actually interesting. U.S. population doesn't get bored with war in the way that some people think. What tends to actually turn the U.S. population against a war is if they don't think it's winnable. So I think that would be the big... I mean, that's why it's very important for Ukraine in their own mind to be seen to be fighting well and to be fighting hard and to inflicting losses on Russia. As long as the Ukrainians look like they have a chance to win and are fighting you know, in a way that can be portrayed to the American people as such, I think the American people's support will be there. If it ever looks like Ukraine is, a, is not going to win and is a bit of a lost cause, then they'll say, okay, is this actually worth it? So I'm not sure that they'll, it's a case of them losing interest. It's more that they'll make a, a sort of a considered judgment about whether the war is winnable or not. Professor Phillips, Payson O'Brien, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. Connor will be back on Friday with another episode of In the News.